Welcome back, listeners, to the In Search podcast. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Melissa Patak, a cognitive neuropsychologist working in the field of learning and memory. If you've enjoyed our podcast up to this point, please review it in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. Now, without further ado, let's get to it. All right. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to In Search. Uh, today, I'm super excited to introduce a colleague of mine whose research has absolutely nothing to do with my own, but is so fascinating. Um, so Dr. Melissa Patak has just uh, earned her PhD, actually. Congratulations. Um, and I'll let her introduce herself and tell us a little bit about uh, her recent accomplishments. Uh, hi, Melissa. Hey, Golshin. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for coming. It really means a lot. So you recently just graduated. Where from? From McMaster University, and I just completed my degree in cognitive neuropsychology. So I am now a cognitive neuropsychologist. Um, basically, that means that I study how we think, so our learning, attention, memory, and uh, I look at it from the neural components or the neural perspectives. You know, one of the really interesting things about this podcast is that I'm a social scientist and a social justice kind of activist, but it's really interesting for me when I get to sit down with people who do something that is so radically different than what I do, right? And I think as researchers and as people who go to graduate school, we often think that our worlds are so separate and we don't think about the fact that they're actually really similar, right? So as, as distant as I guess our, our research is, um, the process, you know, uh, exams and writing an entire dissertation and all of those things, things uh, are probably quite similar, right? Yeah, I, I believe we all have a certain number of coursework or courses that we have to go through at the beginning of our degree. I know my program was a master's PhD combined. I actually decided to finish and defend my master's before moving on to my PhD in, in the year's time that I had. Um, but there are many people that are able to just go straight into the PhD stream from their master's program. Um, but yeah, similarly to many PhD programs, we had a bunch of coursework that we need to complete within the first couple of years. And then one thing that was unique about our program is that we had to do certain a certain number of modules within different labs in order to get experience doing different research type things and learning about different uh, neural imaging processes and different streams within the neuroscience and psychology uh, research. Super interesting. So when you say modules, like, is that like a course that you would take in a different lab and each one would comprise like a comprehensive uh, topic, let's say? Yes, it is more research focused as a course so you are still graded at the end um, however it is more research focused in that you would generally go into a different lab and work on a, a project that is going on within that lab in order to get different experience so an example um, in my first year of my PhD I worked in a lab that had a driving simulator 
So I actually did a little bit of driving-related research and uh, EEG, which is electroencephalography, which essentially is measuring the electrical impulses of the brain. So we were able to see what was going on in the brain while people were driving, which was a really interesting thing. And I had a little bit of background in that because of my undergrad degree. That's what I did my um, undergraduate thesis in. But it was, yeah, it was, it was a, a fun and uh, different exposure that I was able to get through these module type classes. And so I had to do three different modules and they could be in anything that, that you choose. You could also go into industry settings if you're planning on not going into the academic stream afterward. You could go into a, an industry setting where you work with a, a company and get some industry experience um, and see how that world, what that world looks like in terms of um, using your research skills in real world practical applications. So cool. And, and as I understand it, you have divorced academia, right? You have indeed decided to go into industry. Um, yes, for for right now, that is that is the plan. It could change, um, but I am taking a little bit of a break from academia right now, for sure. All right, so let's uh, just dive into your research. Um, so you know, for those of you listening, as you know, this podcast is kind of follows the same formula. I'm going to be asking the four general questions to Melissa as I do to everybody else. Um, so let's dive in here. So Melissa, tell us, tell the listeners here, what is your research about? Okay, so basically I study attention and memory very broadly, attention and memory and how it pertains to learning. So we have this intuitive notion that making learning hard will hinder later memory or interfere with the learning process. However, there has been some recent research to show that there are certain circumstances where making learning hard can actually help memory. And this is pretty exciting because of the we have all of this research showing us that when we, we're doing two things at once, so all this divided attention research, when we're doing two things at once, like texting and driving, um, it actually harms our ability to do that task. Um, so this research where learning, making learning hard can actually help memory um, has been in like in contradiction to these ideas. And so it's really an interesting concept um, and especially when you're talking about learning with um, when you're implementing these things in the classroom, for example, this could be something that would be really beneficial and something that they've started to implement within classrooms. So one example of this is called the spacing effect. So basically, this is the whole idea where you don't want to cram the night before an exam. You want to space your learning out and space your studying out across a number of weeks leading up to the exam because cramming will only get you so far. It actually can help your immediate memory. So you might do well on that test, but chances are you're not going to hold on to that information long term. Um, another example is interleaving topics. So if you're if you have multiple topics, so say you're in university and you have five courses, um, you don't want to just study one topic in one day. You want to try to interleave the topics. The more you interleave them, um, it's been shown that you'll have better memory for that information. 
So these have been called desirable difficulties. And what this means is that when you make learning optimally difficult, this will help lead to better memory for that information. Um, so basically, this is one of the major things that I was looking at um, in, in how you're using certain study uh, habits or techniques in order to help remember that information better later on. Right. I guess, so um, what I'm having a little bit trouble understanding is, so these these kind of techniques, right? Let's say the spacing effect. Would you then say, because you're calling these um, more difficult processes, why is that more difficult? Why is spacing more difficult than cramming, for instance? It's not necessarily that it's more difficult. It just goes against our intuitive notion. So our more intuitive notion would be to study this one thing for the entire day. I know I was victim of this when I was in my undergrad. I would sit down and I would study one topic for an entire day, especially if I had an exam of that topic coming up. Um, so it's not necessarily that um, it's making the things more difficult. There are examples like the spacing effect and interleaving effect are only two examples out of a whole broad range of, of different examples of these effects. Um, but it's not necessarily every time to make it more difficult. It's just making your learning a little bit more difficult or a little bit more, um, like just putting some variety in the ways in which you are learning rather than sitting down, having a, f a four or five hour session, learning one topic and learning as much as you possibly can. Chances are you're going to suffer from, um, some memory loss for those items. Hmm. So there's, and, th and that's the issue is that, um, when we're talking about desirable difficulties, everyone in the field has been getting very, very excited about these, but sometimes these things work and sometimes they don't. So that's where my research comes in because sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. What we've actually been finding is that sometimes they can actually do more harm than good for children's learning or for just learning in general for adults, for anybody. Um, and so my research is trying to figure out what is going on here. So right now it's just been a very descriptive term without too much effort. There has been a little bit of effort and a little bit of research so far, but not a lot of research has gone into figuring out the mechanisms that are at play here. So what is actually going on? What is actually, is it the difficulty as you were saying, or is it something else? What is happening here? And I feel like that's a, a very important question to understand and gather more information on before we start implementing these in in classrooms um, and the issue or one of the things is that we've been looking at it as this very task-wide um, effect so what I mean by task-wide is that we've been looking at it as a very holistic thing so if I make this if I make this thing more difficult add encoding is that going to, is that what's giving me the, the, the memory effect later on? Or is it something else? Um, my work is very mechanistic because I am looking um, at it from a more neurological perspective and cognitive perspective. So we think of it as something that's more stage specific in nature. So when I say stage specific, um, when we're looking at a, a cognitive 
when we're looking at this from a more cognitive perspective, when we process information, there's something called an information processing model. So when you see a glass, for example, you go through a perception stage where you look at that glass and you, you see what it looks like, you see what's in it, and then you go through a categorization stage. So now you're categorizing that, oh, okay, that's a glass. So now I name it as a glass. And then you go through a response selection stage. So that's the stage where you decide, okay, I'm going to move my arm and I'm going to pick up that glass. And then you're going to go through a motor stage where you're actually going to move your arm and put the glass to your lips. And that's how you're going to take a sip of your drink. So when we, when we process information, us cognitive psychologists look at it, not all of us, but there is a, a very general, this is a very simplistic way of looking at how we process information. But we go through these general stages. So perception, categorization, response selection, and motor. And my research... Basically, we experimented with attaching difficulty at different processing stages. So we focused more on um, attaching difficulty at the categorization stage of processing and the response selection stage of processing. Um, And what we've been finding is that the desirable difficulty effect isn't this crazy magical thing where if you make something more difficult it'll lead to better memory. It's actually something more simple from what we have found so far. Please remember that this is only the the beginning of the research of looking at the mechanisms. Our research didn't pinpoint the exact mechanisms, but it's the first stage at figuring out what these mechanisms are. And we found that what really needs to happen is that people just need to focus on the core meaning of whatever it is that they're trying to remember. It's not that you're making something difficult. It's that you just have the attentional processes that allow you to focus your attention on exactly what it is that you're trying to remember. And then that's when you're going to get this, this memory benefit. So it seems pretty, pretty intuitive. Um, but if your attention isn't directed at exactly what it is you're trying to remember, then it's going to be taken away from that important information and it's going to be focused on other things. And that's why we have this um, later memory deficit. So it's really interesting what you're saying to me, but I wonder if you could take us back to the example that you were previously giving us about studying for exams, right? So how would this uh, breakdown of the mechanisms of this, because it's, it's, it's easy for me to imagine these four mechanisms, right, of looking at a glass and actually reaching for the glass and all of the, those four mechanisms, but it's a little bit harder for me to conceive of that within the kind of studying example that you were giving before. So can you give us an example of what those four mechanisms would look like for studying and then what the core meaning would be if I were studying for an exam? Yeah, so the issue there is that this research so far hasn't looked at it from this mechanistic cognitive processing point of view. It's been this very general thing. Um, and it's been applying these concepts to very broad situations. And so I honestly can't answer that right now because we're really focused on trying to pinpoint what is happening in the, in the moment for very specific examples before we can broaden it out to more general examples. 
Ah, I see. Okay. So that's what you mean in terms of this comparison between a holistic versus mechanistic um, way of looking at it, right? Is that like, instead of saying, well, the outcome is to do, uh, you know, like, learn X and do it through um, studying um, uh, the spacing effect, for instance, right? Um, but uh, rather what you're saying is let's slow down the process of the brain to begin with and break down this process into smaller kind of more microscopic, um, uh, you know, uh, stages that the brain goes through. Right, exactly. Because if something is working only 50% of the time or some of the time it works, some of the time it doesn't, it's not really good enough to be implementing within our school systems, especially something so uh, delicate as our children's learning, for example. Um, so my research is more of a, a cautionary tale where I'm saying, okay, how about we slow down here for a second and we figure out what's really going on and pinpoint exactly what's happening in the brain in these moments. And then we could try to explain these more general effects. All right. So let me just kind of dissect and open up your dissertation. So um, first, let me ask you, so is your dissertation made, is it a manuscript or is it a standalone articles or uh, what, what is the, how have you studied it? Is it like three different research questions or tell us more about that? Yeah, so I actually did a sandwich thesis. So all three of my articles are um, standalone in that they're published in different journals. However, they're all answer, trying to answer the same question. The first chapter is a more general, broad um, manuscript where we're poking at the different stages of processing in order to kind of guide our theory. So cognitive research is very theoretical in nature in that you run experiments and then you theorize about what those, um, those results are giving you. Um, and then the second chapter, I, I take a couple of the results from my first chapter and I apply pupillometry methods to them. So pupillometry is using um, eye tracking to measure the pupil dilation differences. And then the third chapter, I do um, a little bit more statistical analysis. And, I, and with each chapter, I replicate the main effects to really drive home this whole theory and an understanding. Awesome. So you know what's coming next. I'm going to ask you about specifically each of these chapters, right? Or these standalone articles, rather. So in your first, in your first article, these experiments, uh, and tell us about some of them. Or all of them, if you'd like. Yeah. Um, so for the first chapter, we used behavioral measures um, in order to investigate something called selective attention. So selective attention is our ability to selectively attend to certain information while ignoring other information. And this is really important because you can implement difficulty um, by interjecting um, certain selective attention where people need to pay attention to something and ignore something else in order to um, get to the core meaning of whatever it is you're trying to remember. And then you can measure their incidental memory for that later on. So what we had um, is we had participants come into the lab and they performed a 
a, a very simple behavioral experiment where they had to classify male or female names. So this is an example of one of the ways in which we targeted the categorization or semantic stage of processing. Um, so when you think of a name, if you think of the name Sarah, one of the thing, first things that you that comes into your mind or pops into your brain is the gender. Sarah is a female name. It's categorical information that is given to you automatically. So it's something that's relatively automatic within our brains. And so we used this gender classification task and then we paired it with a prime. So a prime is something that would show up under the name Sarah. And that prime was the word male or female. So the idea here is that if the word Sarah shows up and then underneath it, the word male shows up, you need to classify Sarah as female as quickly and accurately as possible. But if the word male comes up, it takes your brain a, a minute or not a, not a minute, <laughs> you're actually really quick at this, but it takes your brain a couple of um, milliseconds in order to be like, oh, wait, no, that's not a male name, that's a female name. And so what we find is your reaction times are longer for those stimuli um, compared to if it said Sarah and then the word female uh, showed up afterwards. Your, your, reaction, your reaction time is really quick. So here we think that we're implementing the difficulty at the categorization stage of processing because it's the semantic information. Um, and what we find is that your reaction times are much longer for saying the, the name Sarah when it's accompanied by an incongruent prime. So when it says male, when the prime is male. Um, so it takes us longer to do those, um, to respond to those names. However, what we find is that when we probe your memory later on, your memory is actually better for those names um, compared to if it's a congruent prime where it's Sarah and the word female, your reaction time is lower, but you remember those things. Um, you don't remember those things as well. Ah, so is that why I always remember the more difficult names? Is that related to that? <laughs> um, in theory, it could be, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot more that, that actually goes into it as well. So um, there's this theory that if, if, if things are more um, salient or if they're more... If things are strange than what we would typically see in our environment, then you're going to latch on more memory for those things. You just make more connections within the brain um, for those things because they are, they are strange. Our brain is actually very lazy. We really like automatic things. And when we see something over and over and over again, our brain is less likely to pick up on those things later on. And we tend to focus on the, the different things and the, the crazy things that we see in our environments. So earlier when you were giving us this overview of the four mechanisms, uh, you mentioned that your research looks more at the uh, response selection and the categorization mechanisms. And uh, so you just gave us an example of the categorization mechanisms. And so I'm assuming uh, that in your first article, you also did an experiment or several um, trying to look at the response um, selection mechanism as well, correct? Yes, we actually, um, we did two experiments on the response selection and then three probing the categorization. So for the response selection, it was very similar in nature. We, um, instead of, so 
we had participants do the same categorization task. So I'm going to also use the example of the male-female names again in this one. Um, so participants needed to categorize male and female names as quickly and accurately as possible. But now, instead of the prime being male or female, which, if you remember, is the more semantic uh, categorization information that your brain gives you, uh, the prime is now left or right. Because when participants are making these categorization judgments on the names, they are using left and right hand response keys. So that is targeting our response selection. So if you see the word Sarah and you need to classify a female name with the left-hand response key, then when the word left shows up, that's a congruent prime. It's something that um, is going in the direction that we would be expecting. However, if the word Sarah comes up and the word left or right, sorry, shows up, then that would be an incongruent prime. It's more difficult because you need to classify Sarah with the left-hand response, but you're being primed with the right hand. So again, it takes your brain a second, and you have to say, oh, wait, no, I'm not going to hit the, the right-hand response key for Sarah. It's a female name. I need to hit the left-hand response key. So what we see again in those examples is that, again, when the um, categorization and the response selection do not match, so when it says Sarah and the prime is right when you're supposed to hit the left-hand response key, it takes you longer. However, later on, we don't see any memory benefit for these items. Um, so then this also takes care of something called the time on task effect. So some listeners, if they have any background in cognitive psychology, they might be wondering, okay, well, in the in this semantic categorization experiment where you had Sarah with the male-female names, maybe it's just that participants are spending more time on the incongruent or more difficult, um, the more difficult stimuli. And maybe more time is allowing them to spend more time on that information and create more connections in the brain, and then that's what's giving, that's what's driving the later memory effect. But um, what we see is when we're targeting the response selection, we still see that it um, takes much longer for the incongruent or the more difficult um, categorizations. However, we don't see this memory benefit. And the reaction times are very similar between the semantic and the response selection. Um, so they're, they're pretty equivalent. And then we have replicated these effects many times over the course of my um, of my tenure during my master's and my PhD, um, so it's a really it's definitely a really interesting effect that's happening here. When you when you break down the mechanisms of how we actually respond or um, how we interpret information in the environment, if you break those down into specific stages, they're very, very simplistic stages. There's many stages that go involved, but these are like the four major stages. And when we can actually target the difficulty at those different stages, what we're seeing is that it's not that the, the task itself, just being making the task itself more difficult, 
is what's driving this, these memory effects. It's more where you are focusing your attention. Are you focusing it on the core representation of what it is you're trying to remember? So in these cases, it would be the male or female category responses. Or are you diverting that attention away to other things like response selection, which is then which then will, will hurt your later memory for those items. So you guys haven't done the research on the perception and the motion. So it, I guess it remains to be seen um, if you know you're committing your memory or you're going through these more difficult tasks at the perception stage or at the motion stage. It still remains to be seen the effect that that might have. Yeah, so the reason why we didn't look at the perceptual stage is that there's quite a lot of research on the perceptual on perceptual processing. And one of the other things is that when it comes to perception, we're not co- entirely convinced that you can have a purely perceptual task. In order for something to be purely perceptual, you have to see that item and not think about the categorization or semantic stage whatsoever. And we just think that that's really unrealistic in the real world. So there's no sense in teasing that out because you're going to have perception and categorization a little bit together no matter what. So you can't really tease those things apart. Whereas for the categorization and response selection, those are really those are things that you can really uh, tease apart through experiment um, through experimental methodologies. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. All right, so let's get then to your second article. So in your second article, you said that you use um, this. You kind of fortify the results that you already found with um, eye tracking, which was. Yeah, so um, we decided to extend our behavioral results to something that was more neurologically uh, based. And so we used eye tracking to measure pupillometry. So we measured the pupil dilation of participants while they completed these tasks. So um, pupillometry has actually been shown to be a good indication of cognitive work or cognitive effort or difficulty. Um, Whenever you are doing something very difficult or something that requires uh, mental strain in any capacity, your pupil will dilate. And that shows us, um, so again, that gives us a direct window within the brain without having to do these really intensive neurological uh, methods such as EEG, which is looking at the electrical impulses of the brain, or fMRI, um, or MRI. So you're able to just use a simple eye tracker and you actually can get some pretty good information about what is going on in the brain. And so we basically had participants rerun those exact two experiments where they had to classify names as male or female and there would be a a male or female word prime. Um, And what we found is that your your pupil is dilated when you have the more difficult um, situations or more difficult categorizations. Um, compared to when you have the easier ones where the prime and the category information match. And uh, this is the same thing that we see when 
looking at the response selection. So when you have Sarah and the left or right hand response keys, the more difficult ones, so the one where the category information and the prime don't match, you see this pupil dilation response. And it's very large. It's a very distinct um, pattern of results. And what this is telling us is that um, it's really, again, it's reinforcing this whole idea that it's where your attention is being directed when you're learning. It's not that you're just making things overall more difficult because if, if it were that simple, then we would see better later memory for both the Sarah with the left right hand uh, experiment as well as the Sarah male female experiment. But we only see the memory benefit when we're targeting and focusing our attention to that categorization or semantic stage of processing. So the, the whole pupillometry just reinforces the effect that yes, what we are doing is more difficult and it's more difficult in both of those circumstances. However, we're only seeing the memory benefits when you're focusing your attention on the core meaning of whatever it is that you are trying to remember. So let me see if I got this straight. And so um, I just want to reiterate kind of the things that you've been saying. Um, so, so far, we've been talking about the fact that uh, you are looking in your dissertation at a, the concept of desirable difficulty, which is basically um, kind of the um, our otherwise lazy brains, more difficult processes at trying to understand or remember something. And you're saying that generally studies have looked at the holistic, um, uh, have, have looked at these memory studies uh, holistically, but what your dissertation is doing is looking at this um, through a more mechanistic perspective. Um, and the four mechanisms that you're looking at are perception, categorization, response selection, and motor, right? Um, and so you're, you've been looking, you're saying that if you actually break down these mechanisms, it will tell us something radically different um, than if you just look at a task, for instance. And then through these experiments in your first article, uh, you've, you've found that the mechanism of categorization actually has an impact on the long-term memory versus the uh, mechanism of response selection, which you found has not been effective. And um, to then reiterate all this, you have looked at uh, pupillometry, um, which is basically uh, studying people's people's pupils and whether or not they dilate and it's reinforced your results of your first article correct um yeah so basically i i think you you have the right idea there um when you're talking about mechanisms though i would say that the the uh, perception categorization response selection and motor are stages of the information processing model so they're the they're the stages of how we perceive and um, process information within our environment the mechanisms are more what i am studying because i'm trying to understand the the small components of what makes up this desirable difficulty effect. So I'm trying to figure out what those mechanisms are. And we haven't pinpointed them. This is the, the beginning stages. It's more just to start the conversation within the field about that there might be more going on here rather than just looking at it as a very holistic, oh, well, if I make things more difficult, then people are going to remember it more. And what we're saying is, no, actually, that's that doesn't seem to be the case from what we are finding. 
perhaps uh, we could be looking at it in a way that is actually something more simple than that. And that it's, you just need to get people to focus their full, complete attention on whatever it is that you want them to remember. And how you do that, I don't know. That's the next researcher's uh, job to to go and figure out. Um, But this is just the beginning stages of starting that conversation. But you are saying, though, um, that out of these four stages, at least through your studies uh, so far, the categorization stage or making the categorization stage more difficult is effective on long-term memory. It's not necessarily the act of making it difficult, but it's just the act of getting people to focus on that core information. So remember, with that categorization study, what we're really doing there is that we're not necessarily, we don't know if it's, if it's the difficulty mechanism that's at play. Um, but what we think is happening is that we're getting people to focus on that core aspect of that item. So when you think of the word Sarah again, the core aspect that comes into mind is female. It's the information that we get for free. It's the core meaning and representation of that word. And so what we're getting people to do is uh, we're getting people to attach a little bit more effort and a little bit more work in order to decipher that information. And what we're doing there is we're getting people to really focus on what that core meaning is. And that's what we're seeing the later memory benefit for. Right. Whereas with the uh, following stage, the response selection stage, um, you would say that that then diverts people's attention rather than to have them focus on that core meaning. Correct, yeah. So what's happening in, in those experiments that we think is that exactly what you said, it's diverting people's attention away from the core representation of what it is that they're trying to remember. So the core meaning of Sarah and that is how that is diverting their attention away from the word Sarah. And that's why they're not able to remember that word later on if we're making the difficulty at response selection stage, because we're not getting you to focus on the primary information, which is the word Sarah and, and the, the main attachment that goes along with it. So with that idea, yes, it is, it is where you are focusing your attention. That is the, the main key component. Okay, so, and third, let's get into your statistical article. And, uh, you know, before everybody freaks out, I know a lot of people are kind of scared or intimidated by statistics, but if you can tell us in the most kind of laid back way possible um, what your statistics chapter did. Yeah, I'm not going to dive too far into that third chapter just because it is pretty statistics heavy, or not only statistics, but we just... It's a, a very a coggy way of looking at things, and it's pretty difficult to decipher in, in, a, in a layman's sense because it is very technical in nature. Um, but basically, the idea that we looked at um, is something called the sequence effect. Um, and so the sequence effect is this idea that the trial before the current trial that you are working on can actually influence your reaction time um, and in a very minute way, but it actually 
makes some pretty significant differences. And by looking at the trial by trial examples within these experiments, we can actually decipher between this whole semantic categorization stage of processing and the response selection stage of processing a little more and just drive home those ideas. And basically um, what we have found is the exact same thing. So by looking at the trial by trial examples, we find the same results where when you're getting people to focus on the categorization stage of processing, so Sarah uh, male and having more reaction time for those difficult, infer- those difficult trials, it'll lead to better later memory. And when you get people to focus on the response selection stage of processing, so the Sarah left, um, there is no memory benefit for those um, for those trials that are directed towards response selection. So it's just a way to drive home those ideas a little bit more in a more, even more mechanistic way than what we are looking at. So um, it's just a little bit more powerful and it's a good way to follow up the neurological effects um, that we found in the second chapter. And it just drives home these ideas. All right, so let's just dive into the methodologies section. So we've kind of covered base in terms of what the methodologies are just by you telling us about your different articles. But I want to go a little bit deeper into that. So with these experiments, right? So um, you said something like, I don't remember what the exact number was, but you said something like 270 trials there were. Um so, but you said that this was a way of getting less participants, right? So can you tell me like how many participants you used for the study? Like break that down for us, the, the, the nitty gritty of the uh, methodologies. Yeah, for each experiment. So in each of uh, the chapters, we had 11 experiments in total. Each experiment was minimum 40 participants. So we had a stopping rule of 40 participants. So we'd run a certain number of participants. And once we got to 40, we would stop uh, data collection on that week. So wherever we landed, it was always more than 40 participants. Um, But this is a really good uh, number of participants for these types of studies. Uh, We base this number of participants on previous research that has been done in a, in a similar setting, as well as um, doing a, a typical N power analysis. So something where you do a statistical measure of how many participants you need in order to have statistically sound results for whatever it is that you're looking at. And 40 participants is more than enough because of the amount of trials that we had. Okay, great. And um, the so how do you recruit these participants? Did you just kind of go around the university campus and try to, you know, ask people if they wanted to have their memory studies or uh, how did you do it? Yeah, so one great thing about McMaster is that it is a very research intensive university. So the first year psychology students actually need to get a certain number of research credits in order to pass their course. And so it's really, it's pretty easy for us to get uh, participants for all of our studies in that we just have to put out an advertisement through this system called a SONA system. And the first year students are able to just look through which experiments they want to complete. Um, And then we recruit participants that way. One thing that is a little bit unfortunate about this method is that we are studying 
most of our participants are between the ages of 20 and 24. Um, so that, that doesn't generalize very well, but most of the research that is done in this area is also done on participants between the ages of 20 and 24. So again, that is, that is a problem that is, uh, faced by many PhDs and many experiments um, of this type because you are studying people that are at their their academic prime or their cognitive prime rather. Um, so it's definitely something to take into consideration when you're trying to generalize the results. And I think that's one of the really important things to consider when you're trying to generalize findings to uh, the greater population is you really have to think about these things and and think about what the participants looked like and and how many participants there were in order to to really um, generalize those findings. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and on that note also, is it possible you think that there's like some kind of bias that's being created that you're kind of also studying psychologists or people who are in uh, psychology programs as well? Um, so yes, it's definitely possible. Not all of the students are in psychology programs. They're just taking a psychology class. So there's actually a number of programs at McMaster that require you to take a first year psychology course. So, um, but yeah, absolutely. There's, there's definitely going to be some bias and, and that's the thing. Science is definitely not perfect. Um, and these are things that are, that is really important for scientists to keep in mind. But I think it also kind of speaks to how important research is, right? And how no matter, uh, you know, research studies don't need to be resolute in order for them to have really interesting kind of results, right? So yes, you're right that um, studying people only between the ages of 20 and 24 kind of only captures a small demographic, right? But at the same time, it also incites a lot of interesting questions, right? So what does that tell us about, um, you know, these long-term memory effects? for older generations, right? What would happen if we were to repeat these same experiments that you did with people who are, you know, in their 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s, right? Or with children. Right, exactly. And we could find a bunch of different results for people that are older or even in special populations. Um, so people suffering from anxiety or attention deficit disorder, especially because I'm looking at attentional effects. Um, so these are also really interesting avenues to um, broaden this research idea. Absolutely. Okay, great. Um, and so the next question I have for you is regarding uh, the literature, right? The, the conversations that you're contributing to. So what do you think, what are the ongoing conversations? And you told us a little bit about these like holistic approaches, right? But um, if you can tell us a little bit more about the kind of literature conversations that your research is contributing to, and it doesn't need to be neuroscience specific, right? It could be something that is um, broader. It could be something, it doesn't need to be psychology specific or discipline specific at all um, it could be very interdisciplinary so if you could elaborate on that yeah I think the the main conversation that this is uh, contributing to is just um, in regards to learning and how we learn um, and how students learn how um, people that aren't in school learn it's just in learning in general and how our attention affects our learning and how attention affects our memory um, so when 
and because people have been studying these desirable difficulty effects, so like I said at the beginning, it's been this really exciting time because all we've been uh, taught so far is that when you make learning difficult, it usually harms your memory. It usually harms your learning, right? So if you're doing two things at once, that's making things difficult. And yeah, that's going to disrupt your learning abilities. Um, however, these desirable difficulty effects um, is showing a little bit of promise in that there's actually some, some ways in which you can implement some sort of difficulty to the learning environment um, in order to help maintain that memory later on. Um, and so I think what's contributing, what this research is contributing to is the whole idea of that attention is a really big component to learning. And because these desirable difficulties have been seen with mixed success, um, there's been a call to understanding what is really going on here. And I think that's the, the major conversation that it's opening uh, the field up to is, okay, hey, maybe we should take a step back and we should understand what is actually happening here um, before we get ahead of our excitement and start implementing these into the classroom uh, or into classroom settings. Um, because there's some danger to that. And there's actually been research to show the danger of that, where some of these difficulties can actually um, harm later memory and actually harm your learning capabilities. And so I think um, what we're doing here is we're helping guide the process of dis discovering the mechanisms that are at play. Um, and this will eventually help us understand um, how we can use difficulty and more importantly, how it works. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'll and i kind of tie this in with the last question as well, because we're kind of already ventured into that territory, right? So um, in terms of the desired practical outcomes that you have for your research, um, would you say that these kind of, uh, this, this, these outcomes in learning settings are your desired outcomes? And an interrelated question that I have for you then is, do you think that this is in some way also related to ethics, right? The ethics in learning? Um, yeah, so the practical implications, I think there, there's two avenues for this. So there's the short term um, where we're looking at this as more of a cautionary tale where, again, we're getting people to slow down and stop putting these desirable difficulties into uh, classroom settings before we really figure out what is going on. So it's more of a cautionary tale for um, the field to just, to just show that, hey, there could be something else that's actually going on here, and let's figure out and get to the bottom of what's going on. Um, and then there's the long term, where um, it'll just give us a better understanding of how we learn in general. So these findings can help us implement um, different trainings for teachers um, in which they can apply these findings to classroom settings in order to help our students learn more effectively so that whatever they learn will stay with them more long-term rather than um, what I think could potentially be happening right now. It's something that I've definitely um, had happen to me in high school is that I wasn't studying properly. And so a lot of the things that I learned, I now don't remember. Um, and so if we can figure out a way in which we can help um, drive this learning into more long-term memories where it stays with us for many, many years, this is going to be 
extremely beneficial for uh, future students um, and uh, just the future in general because people will have more knowledge and they'll be able to remember and study things uh, more effectively than um, what they might be doing now. So, Yeah, and that it could actually, you know, it could be something that could be applied in so many different institutional settings as well, right? So in terms of this curricula development that you're talking about, um, it could be very much applied at the high school setting. And I completely sympathize with you. I also do not remember many of the things that I learned in high school. And, you know, and I, and I guess I haven't really stopped to think about why that was and whether, I guess, you know, we always chalk it up to, well, we were young and we didn't really care, right? But is it because... Uh, the actual curricula that are put in place do not have these processes or these kind of studies behind them, this research supporting it behind them, right? So there's the one thing of curricula development, but also in uh, post-secondary institutions, um, but it, it could also be in workroom settings, right? So what happens when, um, you know, how does this help us to prevent um, kind of catastrophes that happen in the labor force, right? Or what else could this help us with? This is, this is, um, could be so broad, right? It could be very far reaching. And then the other thing that's interesting about it is how, um, capacity building leads to effectiveness, right? So if you teach teachers, um, to kind of, build this into their classrooms, then it could probably prevent a lot of the extra work that they end up doing afterwards, right? Such as makeup exams or such as students failing uh, or, you know, students that have higher success rates in post-secondary educations going into the field or things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you hit the nail on the head with all of those. It's, there are many implications that um, this could be used for. And uh, I think the first step is really figuring out and pinpointing what these mechanisms are. And this research is the first step towards that. And it would be really exciting if we could actually figure that out and then start implementing these findings into more practical settings. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I know that I'm not alone in uh, saying that I'm completely fascinated with your research. Um, I can't wait to read uh, as your publications continue to come out um, and read the ones that are already published. Um, So again, I'd like to uh, thank Dr. Patak for having joined us today um, and hope to uh, have you back again on your following research project. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been really insightful to talk about my research in this way. And um, I wish you the best of luck with your future guests on this podcast. It's been a blast. Well, that just about does it for today's episode. We'd like to once again thank you for joining us on the In Search podcast. If you'd like to be on our show, please reach out to us through the link in the show notes. As always, we'd love to get your thoughts on the show. So hit us up on Twitter or email us at insearchpodcast at gmail.com. And because we love your feedback, please remember to rate us in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. And consider subscribing so you don't miss the next episode, which is a fascinating conversation with an archivist who works with First Nations and Inuit communities in the province of Quebec. Until then, stay curious. Stay curious.